Last summer, my family and I had the opportunity to be in Orlando, Florida. I was there for work, and they were with me. And so, uh, you know, when you have three little girls and you're, you are in Orlando, Florida, uh, you already know where you're going to land. And so we went to Disney World, to the Magic Kingdom. And Disney World is, first off, Disney is brilliant, aren't they? Whatever you think of them and what they stand for, they're brilliant when it comes to marketing and promotion and hospitality. I think many churches actually study Disney to learn about hospitality because they're, they're the best at it. And Disney has this system, and I'm wearing one this morning, brought back for me uh, uh, by one of my nephew or nieces. Uh, this is called the Magic Band. And the Disney Magic Band is basically, it takes the place of your ticket now. So you put this band on and you wear it. And the Magic Band is really important because you need the Magic Band to get in to the park of your choice. So if you want to go to Epcot or the Animal Place or if you want to go to Universal or if you want to go to the Magic Kingdom, you need uh, one of these bracelets to get in. They scan it and it's got all your information on it. But not only do you need it to get into the park, it actually does a lot of things for you once you are in there. It allows you to get in certain lines for rides that are faster than other lines. So you are allowed to choose in advance every day three rides, and you basically uh, secure a reservation for that ride for yourself. Typically, you choose a ride where sometimes the line can be an hour to two hours long. And by having what's called the fast pass, fast pass secured, it actually becomes like a 10-minute line for you. So there's a whole strategy to it. I, I learned when I was there uh, last summer. But this is what you need to get in that line. If you don't have it, you can't get in that line. You also can use this, I read online, to pay for your meals. So this is almost like a credit card for you around your wrist. So you can go, you can pay for your meals in restaurants or at um, different stands. You can buy merchandise with this. And if you're staying at one of the resorts, this actually unlocks your hotel room. So this is, does everything but dress you in the morning, right? This is pretty important. And so you need this. Now imagine you get to the park, you got your magic band in on, and you get to the front gate and they scan it and they say, come on in. And you get into the park and you take your band off and you throw it in the trash because you're like, I got into the park. I'm good to go. Of course not. You don't just need this band to get into the park. You need it to buy food, to get on rides, to get back into your hotel room, to buy merchandise. You need it basically to have fun. You, once you get in there, you have to keep it on. How silly would it be for us to say, I got in, I don't need it anymore. One of the most prevalent and dangerous understandings, or I should say misunderstandings about the gospel is that you just need the gospel to get in. And once you're in, you can leave it, you can forget it, you can move on to more advanced spiritual things, to more mystical spiritual things. You can move on from those things. You need it to get saved, but once you're saved, you need something else. And this misunderstanding has really tremendously negative ramifications in our spiritual lives. If we believe this to be true, that the gospel is all we need to get in, but then we, we keep moving through something else, you'll find yourself very exhausted in your spiritual life. You'll find it to be joyless. You'll find it to be a burden. The truth is, we never graduate from the gospel. We never move on from the gospel. We never grow out of the gospel. You know, my girls are growing out of certain things. It was a, it was a, that you don't even know when it's coming, but in one moment, they don't like something they used to love. For us recently, it's been Frozen, Elsa and Anna. 
I mean, there was a season of life where like everything was about frozen. And then in like one day without warning, they didn't let us know, we got them something frozen and we hear these words, ah, I'm not into that anymore. I'm not into Frozen. They've moved on. Now they're on to Moana, and, and there's always something new, right? So there are things that we grow out of. You know, we grow out of clothes sometimes or clothes sizes, you know. We grow out of certain uh, attitudes, hopefully, at times in our lives. But we never grow out of the gospel. And this morning, the thought that we're going to talk about is the idea that, like this band, this band doesn't just get you in. It helps you do everything. The gospel doesn't just get you in. It grows you up. And you'll never grow up in Christ apart from the gospel. You can try, and a lot of Christians are, but you can't do it. The gospel doesn't just get you in. The gospel grows you up. What I want to do this morning with our time is a little different than normal. I want to read you a story from the life of Paul. And this story I'm going to read to you from Galatians chapter 2 is going to serve as a backdrop for everything I'm going to say this morning. And then we're going to return to the story at the end of the message, okay? Normally, I prefer to just stay in one text for a long time, but for the purpose of what we're trying to do this morning, it's going to be helpful for me to go to some different texts to help us understand that the gospel doesn't just get us in, it grows us up. But let's start in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. I'm going to read to you this story out of the life of Paul. Paul is recounting this story in his letter to the church at Galatia. And he's talking about a conflict between him and Peter. And here's what it says, beginning in verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. Can you imagine this scene? Two of the greatest church leaders right after Christ are Peter and Paul. Probably the two greatest. And Paul is opposing Peter to his face. Which, by the way, means at times, even if you both love Jesus, you will have to oppose each other every now and then uh, to help each other grow. I opposed him to his face for what he did was very wrong. What was he doing? Verse 12, when he first arrived in Antioch, he ate with the Gentile believers. These are the non-Jewish converts. He ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. So they had placed their faith and trust in Jesus, but they had not taken on the Jewish customary laws of circumcision and their dietary laws. And Peter was eating with them. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, and what you have to understand there is those were Jews, when the Jewish believers came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. So do you get the picture here? Eating with the Gentiles, but then when the Jewish people are around, he stops eating with the Gentiles because, it says, he was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. So there were people, Judaizers, who were saying, it's great that Jesus did what he did. By the way, if you're not a Jew and you want to get in on our faith, you also need to do the cultural things that we do, such as stop eating pork uh, and a bunch of other things, and circumcision, neither of which is very attractive for a guy. So verse 13, as a result... Other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now look at what Paul says. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message. You see that? When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, a little public confrontation, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Okay, 
So this story is going to serve as a backdrop for what we're going to talk about this morning, and then I'll come back to it at the end. The gospel, the good news is that Jesus Christ lived in our place, died in our place to rescue us and to renew all of creation. The gospel is not something that is only with us at the beginning of our faith journey. It's not just the gatekeeper. It's not the gospel is standing at the gatekeeper and uh, standing at the gate and saying, come on in. But the gospel is our faithful companion every step of the way. You will not take one step in your faith apart from the gospel. Here's a way that it's been said often. We never get beyond the gospel in our life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A through Z of Christianity. Now look at how Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, he's talking to the church at Colossae, and look at how he describes the ongoing nature of the gospel at work in our lives. He says, all over the world, this gospel, this good news is bearing fruit and growing. It's, it's an ongoing thing. You see that? It's present progressive. It's not that it bore fruit in your life, but it's bearing fruit. It's still bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. Not, not, not as it did on the day you heard it, but it's still doing since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. Now, it's belief in the gospel, it's belief in Jesus and, and the truth found in the gospel that makes us right with God, but it's also, it's also the gospel that makes us like his son. So yes, the gospel makes us right with God, but the gospel also makes us like Jesus. And in, in one sense, we are declared and treated as completely holy the moment we believe. That's called justification, at the moment of belief, genuine, sincere, spirit-empowered uh, belief in Jesus, at that moment, you are treated, declared, and seen by the Father in heaven as completely holy, as if you lived the life Jesus lived. Now, that's called justification. That's one part of this. But we are also, aren't we also still growing? So we don't believe in what's called instantaneous sanctification, Instantaneous sanctification is, means this. The moment you're saved, not only are you seen by God as perfect, but you now live perfect. You don't sin anymore. Some people believe that and teach that. They must not be married, or they must not have, they must not have kids. They must, and I'm speaking that for Aaron, not for me. They, 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 they must not live around people. Who can possibly actually believe that? First off, it's not taught by Scripture, but it's not seen in anyone's life. There's no instantaneous sanctification. There's instantaneous justification. That's an act. It happens. It's a one-time deal. But there is progressive sanctification. That's the term that we use. Progressive, ongoing sanctification. So we are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. So God sees us and treats us as if we live the life Jesus did, but here's what's cool. He's also at the same time helping us actually do that. Does that make sense? So God sees you as if you lived the life Jesus did, but he's also helping you live the life Jesus did because you won't. It's, it's both in the same. Uh, another way of understanding this is comparing the terms positional righteousness. You're standing before God. You are positionally righteous before God and behavioral righteousness, okay? So justification settles this issue. We are positionally righteous before the Father, secure because of Christ's work on our behalf. But behavioral righteousness or functional righteousness, that's a lifelong deal, isn't it? I mean, who of us this morning doesn't still have things that we're trying to bring into alignment? So the process of sanctification is trying to bring these two things together. 
Here's, here's one way of understanding sanctification. It's you growing in such a way that you live the way that God already sees you. You begin to live more and more how God sees you and declares you and treats you. Now, hard work and determination and, and dedication are part of the Christian life. We don't just, this doesn't just happen on accident. We don't just sit back and, and accidentally grow in Christ. There do, it does take discipline and determination and, and effort. You know, uh, I think it's um, uh, Dallas Willard says that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. It's a big distinction. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning, that you can earn something from God, but it's not opposed to effort. So hard work and determination and dedication and discipline, those are all things that are necessary in the life of a Christian. But if those things are not in line with the gospel, if they're not flowing out of the gospel, if they're not hand in hand with the gospel, then they will not sanctify you. They will strangle you. In fact, apart from the gospel, even your most intense dedication even your greatest levels of um, uh, determination, all of your hard work are actually just ways to justify yourself. It's called self-justification. Remember we said justification is God declares you as holy. Well, we're also often trying to do what's called self-justification, which is how do I prove that I'm good? And Martin Luther, the famous reformer of the church, was known for saying that self-justification is the default mode of the human heart. That means without the gospel reorienting our heart on a regular basis, your heart and my heart will always drift back to the default mode of self-justification. How do I prove myself through even my good works? So it's so tempting, isn't it? We talked about this a little bit last week. It's so tempting because we like to have control over things. Everybody likes to have control. You ever feel like you don't have control in traffic? You want to get that control back or those moments where you feel like things you can't do anything. We like control. Well, it also works itself into our spiritual lives. We want to control our salvation, but we don't control the source of our salvation. We have to fully trust in Christ in his life and in his finished work. The scriptures say that we are in Christ. Many times in the New Testament, that phrase is repeated, that you are now hidden. We sang it in one of our songs this morning, hidden in Christ on high, complete in him. Here's what it means. In Jesus, you are completely holy and completely accepted. But apart from him, you're neither. And you actually have no workable options. You have no way of making it happen on your own, but in him you are holy and accepted. So all of our behavioral problems, and we have many, and all of our sinful attitudes, and we have many, come from a failure to believe the gospel. I'm going to explain this more, because right now this might just sound theoretical, and how does this all, but all of the sin in our lives is actually the root, if you, can, if you could dig into the root of the sin in your life, it's a failure to believe the gospel and to apply the gospel to that area of your life. Now, when Paul left the church at Ephesus, he knew that there were going to be false teachers who came in after him and tried to tear down what God had helped him to build up. And in, in, in Ephesians, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 20, he says to the church at Ephesus, I know that after I leave you, savage wolves are going to come in among you and not spare the flock. 
even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. They'll try to draw disciples after them. He says, be on guard. Three years I never stopped night and day warning you and warning you with tears. And then look at how he summarizes his thought in verse 32 of Acts 20. He says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Do you know what the word of his grace is? It's the gospel. So he's saying, I commit you to God and to the gospel, which can what? Build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Notice that it's the word of his grace. Notice that it's the gospel that builds up the church. It's the gospel that builds up and sanctifies the believer. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, the entire book of Galatians is written about this basic issue. In Galatians 3, he makes it clear, you are not justified through the gospel and then sanctified apart from the gospel. It's all the spirit at work through the gospel. Look at what he says. These are really strong language that he uses. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So this whole forgetting the gospel thing, he's actually equating it to witchcraft. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He's saying, I preach to you Jesus and him crucified. And he goes, I would like to learn one thing from you. Answer this question. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? He's reminding him, hey, did the Spirit of God come alive in your heart because you kept the rules or because you put your faith in the message of the gospel? Then verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal through human effort? Here's what he's saying. Do you really think that the gospel just gets you in? He's saying here, the gospel doesn't just get you in. It grows you up. You can't do it apart from the gospel. The main problem then in the life of, in the, life of the Christian is that we have not thought, thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not applied the gospel to enough areas of our lives and to our hearts. You know, this past summer, our family was at uh, Ocean City, New Jersey. It was August, and it was beautiful there, and we would run down to the beach every morning and try and get, you know, you try to figure out what's going to happen with the tide. Because you ever seen that? People set their chairs up thinking they're close to the ocean, and then like two hours later, they're in the ocean because they didn't account for the fact that there's a tide that comes up. So you're trying to figure out, you know, how you look at where the sand is smooth and then you set back from it. So we go down and we set up and we're trying to get there and, and have a good day and we're boogie boarding, all this sort of stuff. Now, when you go to the beach, especially when you go to a place that's a little bit south, now Jersey's not that south, but if you're even further south, it's really important that you bring sunblock, right? Or, or something like that to protect your skin. And our, everybody's skin is different. You know, everybody's skin is different as it relates to how it responds to the sun. And my, my nephews and, and, and nieces, Lisa's kids, they're like, they're like made for the sun. I mean, they just perfectly bronze over. I mean, it's just like they, they are just, incre- the sun treats them very, very well. Caroline's a little bit the same. But Lilia, my little pale-faced Casper the Friendly Ghost daughter, uh, when she goes out and gets sun, the sun ravages her. Like, it burns her, and it burns her fast. So some of you, how many of you, you burn really fast in the sun, right? Isn't it nice to talk about the sun in, in January? It doesn't... 
And so we would go down and we would put sunblock on them. And you know how it is. You, you put a big glob of sunblock somewhere on your body and then you begin to spread it out. Now imagine that you're at the beach and the sun was strong and you wanted to protect yourself from the rays and from all the danger of the rays. And you just put a huge glob of sunblock on your chest and you're just like, I'm good. And you're walking around and people are like, what are you doing? You got to put sunblock on. You're like, I I put sunblock on. Can't you see? It's like, it's right here. It's this huge glob right on my chest. What would somebody say? No, you have to apply it. What do they mean? You got to spread it out. You got to apply it everywhere. You can't just put it in one spot and then expect it to work everywhere. The same thing here. When, when we struggle to grow as Christians, our main problem as Christians is that we're not broadly enough applying the gospel. I mean, yeah, we might have a big glob of it somewhere on us, but we're not applying it. We're not, we're not um, letting it uh, be appropriated to different areas of our lives in, in our hearts. One of the ways to understand discipleship or what it means to become a disciple or become like Jesus is that it's when the Spirit is helping you, listen to this, to move from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every area of your life. So that's what discipleship is. It's when the Spirit helps you to move from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every area of your life. And the truth is, is that if we could somehow categorize the areas of our lives and chart out our level of belief in the gospel in those different areas, there are still significant deficiencies in all of us, in you, in me. Areas of our lives, some areas of our lives, we're really good at trusting the gospel and applying it, but other areas we're not. Here's some areas of life that I listed. Relationships. Some of us are very good at, at knowing how to preach the gospel to ourselves in the areas of the relationships in our lives. Some of us really struggle, and our lives are filled with unhealthy relationships. Finances. Some of us want the gospel to speak to our eternal security and salvation, but we don't want it to speak to our, our wallet or to our bank account. We're not applying the gospel. Uh, our, our work. Sometimes there's this uh, what, I, what is called dualism, where we've divided two things that don't need to be divided. There's the dualism in our lives sometimes between the sacred and the secular. And we think, well, what we do in this building is worship, but what we do out there is just like, it's just my secular work. I just do it so I can pay bills. That's not biblical. That is an act of worship. Everything you do, the Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, whether it's eat and drink, whatever you're doing, it's all worship to God. And so how do we appropriate the gospel when it comes to our work and our careers? Listen, if you're not applying the gospel in the area of work, then you're going to become possibly a slave to your work. Or you're going to become numb to work and you're going to see it as a menial task, which has no actual uh, spiritual implications. But it does because he's Lord of all. Everything does. Another area of our life where the gospel has to be applied is entertainment. How do we, what are we, what are we feeding ourselves? What are we centering our hearts on? What are we preaching to ourselves? What stories are we believing? Because, you know, every song, every movie, every television show is telling you some story. It's got some narrative that it's trying to tell you, and it shapes your, it shapes your life. Our, our bodies, our, our physical bodies, whether it's our health or our sexuality, our emotions, our intellect, these are all different areas of our lives where as we grow more and more like Christ, we, we move from unbelief to belief in the gospel in those different areas. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get very practical at the end and show you exactly what this looks like. So, but, but let me just finish up my main argument here by pointing to a couple more things Paul says. Because when Paul confronts behavioral issues in, in the scriptures, look at what he does. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, 
Paul is instructing the husbands to love their wives. Good, good instruction. Instructing the husbands to love, his, love their wives, or sorry, their wife. Uh, but he does, he, <laughs> wrong church. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't simply tell them, he doesn't simply say in Ephesians 5, hey guys, 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 it's the right thing to do. Come on, love your wives. It's the right thing to do. He doesn't verbally bully the husband into it. Uh, and he doesn't even work on the husband's emotions. Come on, don't you care? Remember when you first met her? Remember how much you used to take her out for dinner? He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He says, husbands, love your wives because just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, he's not just giving them an example there. He's actually, this is very profound, he's giving them the motivation. He's saying, remember the gospel. By the way, men, you're part of the church. Do you remember how Christ loved you? How he gave himself up for you? So how can that not so change our lives that we're willing to lay our lives down for those that we love, to give ourselves up for our, for our wives, to lay down our preferences, to consider their needs, to cherish them the way that Jesus has cherished his church, right? So it's not just simply, come on, guys, do better. It's you've forgotten the gospel. And then in the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there, there's been a famine in Jerusalem. And Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which is in Asia, Asia Minor. And he's saying, hey, we need some finances. Like the church in Jerusalem is really struggling to eat, to survive. And so he's going to take an offering. Now, he does not remind them of the Old Testament tithe law, though he could have. He does not guilt them into giving, though he had the skill to do so. Rather, in chapter 8, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians, he reminds them of the gospel. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He's saying, come on, guys, recenter your hearts on the gospel. The gospel makes you love your wife. The gospel makes you generous. The gospel makes you whatever. And then one final example is where we started this morning in Galatians chapter 2. Paul's confronting Peter about what he's doing, about the hypocrisy in his life. He says, Peter, you're acting one way with the Gentiles when the Jewish brothers aren't around. And then when the Jewish Christians come in, you act another way. And he could have said to Peter three things. He could have said, uh, hey, you're being a hypocrite. He does identify it as hypocrisy, but it's not how he confronts Peter. He could have said, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. He could have said, Peter, you have a lack of integrity. You're living one way in this situation, and you're living another way in this situation. Come on, have more integrity. He could have called him out on racism, because that's actually what's happening here. This is is an issue of one culture is superior to another culture. That's the heart of racism. And so Peter could have said that, or Paul could have said that to Peter on anything. But instead, did you notice in verse 14 what it said was, when I saw that they were not, how does he describe it? Not following the truth of the gospel. Another translation, which I prefer, says it this way. When I saw that Peter was not living in line with the truth of the gospel. So if you think of the gospel as a center core of everything we believe, remember week one, the gospel is unique and central to Christianity. And if you think of it almost like a sun with different rays going out, as we grow in Christ, we always are in line. We're always in line with the gospel. And Paul recognizes in Peter's life, hey, Peter, you're not in line with the gospel. Now let's pause for a second. If Peter, 
got out of line with the gospel, who in this room couldn't it happen to? Peter walked with Jesus, saw Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, was restored by Jesus on a beach, was the leader in the church, you know, and still here he is. It's almost encouraging for us, isn't it? It's a little bit encouraging. It's like, okay, so I'm not the worst in the world. Like Peter was having an issue too, not living out the gospel. And then in the very next verse, this is where I wanted to bring you. Paul, here's what Paul says to Peter. Now here's what, this is what I want you to hear. Paul is preaching the gospel to Peter. That's what he's doing. He's preaching the gospel. He says, Peter, you and I are Jews by birth, not quote-unquote sinners like the Gentiles. Yet you know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. It's almost insulting. Peter's like, come on, that's the ABCs. Like, you're, Paul, you're really going to remind me of that? I wrote a book too, you know? Like, I, I, I wrote about that also. Like, I was there. Like, Paul, you didn't even see Jesus. You had to get a vision of him later. Like, I'm a legit disciple. You're, like you're kind of like disciple 2.0. And you're going to come, and your message to me is simply that people are made right with God through faith in Jesus? Like, no, duh. I know that. But his heart in one specific area had forgotten. And he wasn't growing up because he was forgetting the gospel. I, so let me read the rest of this. He says, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we have been made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we obeyed the law. Now, this is like the hammer uh, on the nail. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. I mean, there, you can't, some scriptures are hard to interpret. You can't interpret that sentence a lot of different ways. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Now, here's what you need to notice about this. Paul is not making a gospel presentation to a room full of unconverted people here. He's speaking to a fellow believer, a leader of the church, and this gospel message is still applicable and needed by Peter. Peter, you can't, you can't, here's what he's saying. Peter, you forgot the gospel. You're putting burdens on these Gentiles when you've been brought in, even though you've never kept the rules, Peter, do I need to go through all the different times in your history when you didn't keep the rules, where you messed up, where you sinned, where you fell short? But you've been brought in. It's not your works that brought you in. It's God's grace. And now you're trying to put this burden. You've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten that you've been brought and seated at the table of God in relationship, despite the fact that you denied him three times on the night that he was crucified. And now you won't even invite these Gentiles to your table to sit and to eat. It's not shame, shame. It's remember, remember. Remember, remember. Remember the gospel. No one's going to get made right with God by obeying the law. So what we learn is that Paul, in all of his instruction and exhortation, and even when he was confronting people, he was saying, your root problem, your root problem is a failure to remember and rehearse the gospel. Remember and rehearse. Richard Lovelace says it this way. It's a failure to grasp and believe it through and through. Holy Spirit, help us believe the gospel through and through. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, all of us to some degree, speaking about Christians, all of us live around the truth of the gospel but don't quite get it. So here's the key for growth. You're trying to grow. You struggled with your lack of growth. Here's what Keller says. The key to continue, the key is, the, sorry, the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival 
is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. A stage of renewal is always the discovery of a new implication or application of the gospel, seeing more of its truth. This is true both for individuals and the church. You want to see revival in the church? Let's rediscover the gospel over and over and over. Now, if the challenge for us is remembering, rehearsing, rediscovering the gospel, what do we actually need to do? I want to give you some practical thoughts here. You know, this is why we do what we do in church. You ever wonder why do we stand and sing? Why do we have preaching? Why do we give? Why do we greet one another? Do you know what it is when the church comes together? It's a corporate retelling of the gospel. We sing songs that remind our hearts of the gospel. We listen to teachings that are reminding us of the gospel. In our giving, it's a gospel practice of generosity. In our greeting of one another, it's a gospel practice of hospitality. In our regular coming together, it's a gospel practice of surrendering my time and my schedule to a greater kingdom and to the people of God. So that's why we do what we do. You know, if you're, gonna, if you're going to rehearse and remember the gospel, you need to be in church on a regular basis because this is a place where we retell the gospel together. This is also why we need to be in Scripture. Reading Scripture is not simply about doing what you're supposed to do or checking it off a list. You need to read the Scriptures because you need to be reminded of the gospel. You'll forget. This is why we pray, so that we can be reminded of Jesus. This is why we need accountable relationships with other Christians. This is why we listen to certain types of music sometimes. I'm not a stickler on types of music you listen to, but there are seasons where I need to hear gospel-heavy music. I don't mean style gospel music. That's fine, too. But I mean, like, the lyrics are stirring my hearts to worship. You know, one of the things that I've heard my dad talk about as he's gone through this suffering is that he spends a lot of time listening to worship music on YouTube. And so something about that sort of like, you got to remember, if you want to listen to other stuff and other music, that's fine. But just pay attention to what it's telling your heart and just make sure that you're not more in tune with that story than his story. Happens very easily. So I'm not a stickler on what you're listening to, but I'm just saying there are times in our days where we're really frustrated or anxious. um, And if you're frustrated and anxious, you can listen to angry music that helps you feel angrier. You can listen to sad music that helps you feel sadder. You can listen to country music that makes you lose your will to live. That's, that's just me. Or, or you, can listen, you can listen to a song like Before the Throne of God Above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, right? And, and it's, it's you rehearsing the gospel. There's practical ways that we need to be doing this. What you read, what you listen to, what you meditate. If we're going to grow, we need to immerse our hearts daily in the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said, the most important daily task that any Christian has is to preach the gospel to themselves. Can you preach the gospel to yourselves when you're stressed out, when you're sad, when you're anxious? Where does your, what story does your heart start to go to to make sense of what you're experiencing? The gospel doesn't just get us in, it grows us up. And in these last few minutes, I just want to give you a couple practical examples and we'll finish. First is this, um, and these are examples from my own life, and I just want to show you how this works. Some of us live with this need, uh, the need to be right. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you can relate to this. Like, it's really important to you that you're right. And here's how you know this is you. You're, you got to win every argument. You got to get the last word in. You got to make sure that you were heard at all costs. 
Sometimes the indicator is that you're just ultra competitive as it relates to sports and your, and your teams. And so your, your desire to be right is for your teams to have victory. And it also manifests itself in when we meet people who don't like the things that we like. It's as silly as things as like type of food. Like what? You don't like sushi? What's wrong with you? And then they're looking at me going, you like sushi? What's wrong with you? And then I'm determined to prove that I'm right. Well, let me show you why you're wrong, and let me show you why I'm right. And sometimes that need to be right, whether it's politics or sports or music or any sort of opinion, it controls us. And what I'm believing in that moment is I need to be right, and I need to win in order to be somebody. In order to, in order to prove myself, in order to justify myself, I got I to gotta make sure I'm right. And so if somebody challenges me, I find myself doing this sometimes. Someone tells me something, I'm like, I don't think that's true. And so I start Googling it immediately. So then I can come back to them and say, no, see, it's, it's not true. This is, right? And so sometimes that drives me, and it controls me, and it enslaves me, and I need to be right. And what I'm forgetting about the gospel is it's very simple. It's this. Jesus Christ is my rightness. Jesus, you're my righteousness. You endured being terribly misunderstood. He endured being seen and judged to be the worst kind of criminal he wasn't declared to be right by the, by the uh, justice system. He was declared to be a criminal, but he endured it, and he did it for us to become our righteousness and to be our rightness. And as I, it, as I begin to preach that to my heart more and more in those moments where I'm thinking, I can't wait to prove this person wrong, as, as I begin to speak to my heart, don't forget, David, Jesus is your righteousness. If that person thinks that you were wrong about that for the rest of their life, it doesn't define you. What defines you is the rightness that you have before Christ. And so I need to preach that to my heart. Another thing, not just the need to be right, but some of us are controlled by the need to be liked. The need to be liked. And so the indicators here is that you're a people pleaser. You want to be popular. You need to be fun. You need to be funny. You need to be helpful. You need to be smart. You need to be a contributor. You can't just show up. you got to somehow prove your worth and your value by, by making people accept you for, for what you're able to do. And in those moments, we're believing, if I'm not accepted by others, then I can't even accept myself. And my value is determined by how other people see me. And here's what you're forgetting. I'm going to finish in just a minute. You're forgetting that the Father accepts you already based on the performance of Jesus, not based on your performance. And if no one else in this world accepts you, you're secure in Christ. You're accepted in Christ. Now listen, I know on paper that sounds relatively easy, but in real time, how hard is that? How hard is that? Thankfully, we don't do it in our own strength. God gives us more grace. The Spirit is at work. And another way that we grow is in community with one another, people pointing out to each other, hey, seemed like in that moment you really needed to be right. Can I help you remember the gospel? Preach the gospel to one another. This past uh, Friday night, we are in Albany. I drove my parents to Albany to, to visit a doctor there. And as you're praying for my dad... Uh, I think he, some of you probably got a text, but some of the issues going on now are related to jaundice, which was kind of a nor, it's kind of normative with this sort of a situation, and so he's going to be seen soon about that, and they'll they'll treat that and continue prayer for strength and and appetite and those sort of important things and energy. But we took my parents to Albany Friday, stayed overnight uh, at a um, Hilton Garden right there in Albany Medical Center, and uh, my dad and I were sitting out in the in the watching um, uh, Shark Tank. And we're sitting there watching Shark Tank together. And one of the, one of the uh, investors, his name is Barbara Corcoran. And uh, she, told, she told her story. And her story was remarkable. I'd never heard it before. She grew up incredibly poor. 
Um, and she got D's in school all the time when she was young because they didn't realize that she had dyslexia at the time. And so she was getting D's. But the problem is, is back then it was a little different. People weren't as aware of those sort of needs. And so what she believed about herself was that she was just stupid. Like that's what people would tell her. Well, you're getting D's because you're stupid. But she actually had a learning disability. So her whole life she's been trying to prove, I'm not stupid. I'm not stupid. And then her boyfriend, who's also her business partner, runs off with her, or sorry, runs off with her secretary (laughs) And on the day that she leaves him and they split the business, and she says, obviously, we can't do business together anymore, and they split the business, he says to her, you will never, ever succeed without me. And so her whole story has been shaped by those two narratives. I'm not stupid, and I can succeed without this guy or any guy. Now, everything she does, you can hear it in her story, all of her success came from that drive. Is it inspiring? Yes. Is it remarkable and is it worth applauding? I think so. And I'm sure it's made her happy in many ways, and I'm sure at most times it helps her a lot. Obviously, needing to prove that she isn't stupid and that she won't fail has helped her because now she's wildly successful and wealthy. But I'm guessing, I'm guessing that it's also hurt her at times. That it's also hurt her at times, and ultimately, the need to prove that she's not stupid and that she can succeed drives and consumes and controls her. She's not free. She's enslaved to those two things. Because the motivation to prove I'm not stupid can actually create very undesirable behaviors in people too. If you're consumed with proving you're not stupid, then you'll refuse to admit when you're wrong, no matter what. You can't afford to. There's too much at stake. You'll disregard other people's opinions because you don't want to be seen as stupid if you take someone else's opinion on something. And you'll have an all-consuming, controlling pursuit of education to validate yourself. I'm for education. But sometimes the pursuit is really about validating ourselves. If your motivation is, I can succeed without anyone else in my life, or I will prove that I can succeed, it could lead you to cheating so that you can succeed, to unethical decisions, to hurting others, to stepping on others to get on the top, to the top. Now listen, please hear me. My point is not to pick on her. I'm sure she's a wonderful woman. My point is to say we're not very different from her. That's my point. We're all preaching some sort of message to ourselves, telling ourselves some sort of story, and it's determining who you are becoming and how you are growing. If you want to become like Christ... Preach the gospel to yourself. Because the gospel, it doesn't just get us in, it grows us up. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you.